I just want to say a quick thanks to everyone who has left a podcast review so far. It's been fantastic to see what you guys are making of the podcast and really enjoy reading them. Rest assured, I do read every single one. So thanks again. And if you haven't left a review yet, it would do us a massive favor if you would, as that would help us grow this community and reach more grassroots coaches who will benefit from these conversations. So thanks again, and we really appreciate it. Welcome to the Athletic Evolution Podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Niall McSweeney and Matt Lamarck. Niall completed his master's at St. Mary's University. While studying, he secured a position as an SNC coach at White Lodge, which houses the Royal Ballet School students aged 11 to 16. Niall has previously worked with a variety of sports, including the University of Liverpool sports teams, London Broncos, and GB sitting volleyball. Niall also has a private coaching business called Energia Performance. Matt is an SNC coach working with the Royal Ballet School for the last three and a half years. He completed a master's by research, quantifying training loads in elite adolescent ballet dancers in collaboration between the Royal Ballet School and St. Mary's University. He's previously worked within both male and female rugby at Richmond Rugby and male football at Leighton Orient Football Club, as well as a short stint in academy level cricket. So welcome to the podcast, Niall and Matt. Thanks for coming on today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having us. Uh, it's really cool, uh, like all the other people have been on here and stuff, so it's great to be here. So for those who haven't come across you guys, we'll start with you, Niall. What's, what was your kind of involvement in sport as a youngster and how has that led to you being at, at the ballet? Um, well, I probably wouldn't have seen it coming. Um, but yeah, I was... So I, I grew up in a tiny village in, in Nottingham and um, I just basically... There's basically nothing to do apart from sport there. Uh, but I'm actually like pretty dyspraxic and uncoordinated. So I had to um, like teach myself a lot um, to try and like get to a kind of decent-ish level. And then um, like from that, um, I obviously carried on with the sport, kind of went to union and tried to do sport there. But I kind of realised that actually um, I probably, you know, that was as far as I was going to get sporting-wise. And I thought I still wanted to be involved. And um like I actually I love sport like I love everything about it so I thought I'd sort of go down the coaching route um and try and use some of that stuff I suppose I was trying to teach myself to help other people really and um yeah and I started off like in mostly involved in like rugby teams and things like that and ended up working for the university and uh yeah now through a kind of slightly strange path I've ended up uh working in ballet which is uh I probably don't fit the normal ballet ballet dancer physique or whatever but uh but yeah it's, it's good it's good to be here yeah i don't think you get many uh rugby players switching codes to ballet do you no, yeah <laughs> so what about yourself matt what, what's your journey been in terms of your own engagement in sport and how that's evolved um a little bit similar uh i grew up playing sport a lot in I mean, my parents were quite pushy into sports um not to like a high standard, but just more come from a recreational point of view. And then as I started to get older, I started playing more, especially rugby and football, but I had quite a lot of injuries. Um, quite a serious injury when I was 17. So instead of, or while I was rehabbing, I started coaching and then went into college. Um, and again, started coaching a little bit more there. And when I was about 19, I think I had a, my last serious injury in my last game of rugby. And that's where I decided to kind of stop playing probably wasn't worth it and to start coaching a little bit more so at the time it was just a it was a really small college on the outskirts of London but there's just some really cool people there um one of the tutors at the time was a guy called uh, Wesley Fox who's now at Middlesex University and with Arsenal Ladies and he was the first SNC coach I had met and hadn't heard of it at the time so I was looking more into the, the kind of technical coaching pathway um but then when I was going down that he introduced me to the idea of SNC and so I started exploring that and then yeah went off to university and from there it's just similar to now I didn't expect to be working in ballet um, and yeah it's been a cool journey but one of that I kind of didn't really foretell I always thought I'd be working in like football or rugby or something yeah something like that but ballet's uh, where my heart is at now <laughs> I guess that is very unexpected so for for you guys, I guess individually it may, it may differ, but what do you, what would you consider to be your kind of underlying driver or why for coaching every day? So keep that over to you, Niall. 
Um, well, like obviously sport for me is like, um, you know, it's made a huge impact on my life, I suppose. Um, and I like, like I've had some amazing coaches that have um, had a huge influence on me and like I've got a lot out of it. So it's just nice to have, I mean, it's a job that I really enjoy and I feel like I can help other people in a small way to like improve their lives, which is, you know, it's, it's pretty cool. Um, so yeah, and you know, I like, I can't really imagine a situation where I wasn't uh, coaching, I guess. Like even, um, even now I still do kind of casual rugby coaching and all these other things. Um, so yeah, so it's a- any level really, it's just, uh, yeah, really motivating, I suppose. How about yourself, Matt? Similar kind of driver or slightly different? Yeah, very similar. Um, I think I just enjoy working with people. Um, the cool thing about our job, and especially the environment at the moment, is it, it does genuinely feel like you're helping other people and that you are making a bit of an impact. Um, there's been a big difference on like where we started, when we first started in the school to where it is now. And so I think it's, yeah, it's quite cool because I always wanted to work with people and to help others. Um, SSC may not be the most meaningful way. There's obviously a lot more other highly skilled key workers who do more important things. But this is just, yeah, one of the ways I can help out, like, especially from a rehab point of view, I think athletes find that very tricky. And I don't think a lot of people really understand that. And if, I think the people who emphasize the most are the, are the coaches who've had a serious injury. And so it's quite cool to be there at someone's lowest point and kind of work with them through that journey and see them dancing on the main stage which is pretty cool they're very similar so are there any experiences or particular people along your path that have really been influential in shaping your coaching practice um cool yeah so i um there's been loads basically um we've got some pretty cool people we work with now at rbs and uh karen and everyone and um i've had quite a lot of like internships and stuff like that kind of mentors as i was making my way through snc um so I won't probably list everyone because I'll forget people or it will just take ages. But um, I think probably the most, the two most like really influential moments on me. Um, one was just when I was a young, like a young rugby player. I went to like my local team, which was in Syston, Leicestershire. I was like under, I think I started under 13s or 14s and I played up probably last time when I was like 19. And we had um, this guy who was Chris Tresler who there's probably no way we ever hear anything like this but he's uh he was actually like cat for tigers ages ago you know like he's like a bit of a tigers legend um and he was like one of my first coaches and like he completely like the culture he made there we had like loads of kids from completely different backgrounds and stuff and it was just so like inclusive and amazing and still now like i use a lot of the things that he's taught me like they've really like shaped my beliefs um and so he had a huge influence on me uh, and just the way I saw sport and kind of how seriously I took it and stuff like that. Uh, and then probably the other one, which was a bit of a kind of fork in the road sort of moment was when I was quite young and I just started doing S&C really. And I got this internship at uh, Worcester in the summer and it was pretty sort of tough because I was commuting from Nottingham and back each day. And um, like it was just, I was a little bit in over my head as well. Um, and I remember I spoke to Stu Pickering there, who's now at the EIS, um, and just said, like, you know, do you have any advice, blah, blah, blah. And he really, like, sat me down and was kind of like, this is what you need to prioritise. Like, you need to go out and do, like, all the coaching you have. And he just sort of gave me, like, a real focus that completely, like, then changed how I approached it kind of moving forward. And I think probably without having those discussions with him, I wouldn't imagine that I'd be here now. Uh, but there's been lots of good ones, but those are the two that probably had the biggest impact on me, I suppose, maybe. Fantastic. What about you, Matt? Similar experiences or, di- I mean, obviously different people, but similar kind of things for you? Um, slightly. So I remember when I was a kid playing rugby, we had three or four coaches and one of the coaches um, was a guy called Ben, whose son was on the team as well. And I just remember, it's just a, it's just tackling. And I was just having such a kind of, in this particular session, having such a, a tough time of it. And I just remember, it kind of explains a lot of my injuries now that I'm back at it. Um, but he just kind of, it was, it was something so insignificant for him because he just took five, 10 minutes out of that session to talk me through it. And just as a 14, 15 year old, I was getting really frustrated. And 
for me, like that's the first time I really understood what a coach was. I mean, there's a lot of the coaches I had at the time, some were really good, some weren't as much so, but he like he genuinely cared. And so I think that was the first moment I realized that like, this is really cool. Like, I think I want to be a coach. Um, just because like I still remember that 10, 12 years down the line. Um, like it's clear as day. And so I guess I always wanted to have the same um, impact. And again, at college, there was good, good tutors and bad tutors. And I think that's quite important that you kind of see like you're, you're exposed to those because you realize that kind of what is right and what's wrong. And I've been quite fortunate with my internships to work with some really, you know, really knowledgeable, but also really trusting practitioners. So I worked in football with Craig Smith. Um, I think it's now at Peterborough, but he was really understanding. He kind of, I, I was probably really annoying. I, in my head, I just probably really was driven and cared, but I probably came off as really annoying. But he kind of gave me a lot of time of day and a lot of opportunities to coach, which not many people get as a first year student or a second year student. And then everything from then, all my career, like all my next career steps had, had all been like very connected. So I went on to work in the rugby and again, working with two practitioners who like trusted me and I maybe could see my work and so they all had a big influence on me because they allowed me to coach and explore and make my own mistakes but also were there to bounce ideas off or to know that I've gone got the, the security of them to like behind me so yeah, it's been a interesting like and bit of a chaotic uh, experience in a sense it's just been all over the place um, yeah I just think like from both of us summarising that, it's like those people, it's kind of like a, I don't know, rock in the water sort of thing and then the ripples are like, have a positive effect and then we try and have a positive effect on other people and that probably like sums up kind of why like why we are motivated to do it but also like why I think it's such a cool thing I mean, I don't know if we may never achieve that but, yeah. but like it's that it's like trying to do that and trying to like influence people in a way which is um you know, now we remember these guys and like, I don't think I've seen Chris, for example, for 20 years. <laughs> so, mm. yeah, It's really interesting because it's funny, it seems when you chat to people, there's always one coach in their, in their childhood, in their formative years that stands out. And ironically, that coach probably has no idea that they had played such a pivotal moment. Like you, like you said, Matt, that was just a five minute thing. So he's probably long forgot that. In fact, probably forgot it later that session or later that week. But it still stands there in your memory years later. And, and I'm, I'm exactly the same. Like I've got coaches from when I was a kid that were similar to yourself. It probably was the moment that sparked, actually, this is what I want to do. But it's funny because so much of SNC and so much of coaching is geared around, ah, oh, the pinnacle is, you know, premiership football or premiership rugby or, you know, the Olympic final. But actually the impact, the impacts that are there seem to be, available so much more freely like they could be around the corner at your grassroots rugby club or your football club true, yeah. you know it's you don't have to be an olympic final to be making an impact in people's lives it could be a five minute thing of taking a kid out of a tackling drill who's struggling with it yeah um, yeah so it's a common thing with a lot of guests that there is i mean i don't know if you're familiar with uh, dan coyle's book the talent code but he talks i think he calls them fire starters but the idea of there's that one coach that kind of makes you fall in love with the game or makes you fall in love with coaching and they don't necessarily have to be the best coach in the world but they would just available free willing and enthusiastic you know yeah so yeah. it's interesting that you we've all had that same experience so as, as you've obviously you know evolved in your journey as coaches and and i guess also switched from various more mainstream sports into more of the performing arts has your coaching philosophy changed like how would you describe your current kind of coaching philosophy i think for me it has it's definitely evolved. Um, now I'm working with a bunch of people that the, the ballet dance is incredible. They're borderline annoying in some instances just because they're so talented, they're so driven. They can, like, they're just, yeah, these amazing humans who can sing, dance, play 17 instruments, uh, these amazing artists, and are still like the most kind of down to earth people ever. Um, so, this has definitely been my favorite environment to work in in the sense that they all want to be there, they all show up and are very willing and driven. Um, the population I work with are from 16 to 19 years old. So there's some days where they may be a little bit upset or hormonal, but then it's like part of the course and just kind of take down a stride. Um, but I think it's very easy, especially in our environment where we're a boarding school. So 
these dancers like live and breathe ballet for 24 hours a day even in their boarding house it's there with every like all the other ballet dancers and so I think it's very easy to forget that these amazing talented people are people um it's something of as I guess it um working I worked with Richmond Rugby for two years and that was something similar where the men's team were in a championship at the time and the women's team were in a premiership and they were I guess professional players in the sense that they were being paid but all the they uh, all the players had full-time jobs and so they again were very driven like having eight ten hour days and then coming to rugby four times a week and then to play on the weekend and showing up and being like, really driven um definitely was a nice yeah kind of helped me kind of shape my philosophy because again it's just it was there's it more to them than just the sport and then and to the snc like I think I'm a bit of a bad SNC coach in a sense. I think at times it's very insignificant. Um, and so I think like for my coaching practices, it's definitely shifted now to more. It's like, it's not just SNC. If I get them in a session and they can get what I want done and that's great. But at the same time, if these ballet dancers are going to have a positive experience in SNC, um, SNC and ballet is definitely still evolving for the better. But now it'll get, it'll get to a point where I was talking to a couple of former dancers who I worked with two or three years ago, and they'll still like email me or ask me different questions about SNC, which they don't have to, but I'm like, I'm kind of, I'm glad that I'm there. They seem as approachable, but the moment, uh, it's been quite touching. I've had a couple of people say that they've, they want to go into SNC after their ballet career. And so I think my philosophy now has definitely changed from not being, it's just more of a personal approachable point of view. I appreciate it. I kind of rambled a little bit there. It's interesting. I had a few discussions just more recent, recently. The last podcast recorded with a guy who's the under 18s backs coach for, for Scotland and a player himself. And his whole thing is just it's relationships first. Like, yeah, that's, that's what's got to come first. And, you know, it's, it's interesting because people would maybe think that ballet is so far away from, from performance sport and there's so many differences. And so but fundamentally, we're all coaching human beings. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Um, the context might be different, but human psychology is pretty much the same the world over and people are people. So it makes sense that, you know, if people are having positive experiences, they want to come back and, you know, to have to have former dancers that, you know, I'm guessing there's not a lot of ballet dancers that go into SNC. So that's obviously a pretty positive recommendation for yeah. your interactions with them. Yeah. So what about you now? Uh, yeah, I mean, like similar to Matt, like I think it's, you know, you want to be very like athlete or artist centered I suppose depending on what you prefer like it's really about trying to understand the person as much as you can and then um like deliver the kind of best thing for them which I think definitely when you're when I was younger I was kind of like you know I've read my super training or whatever and I'm like I want to get these scientific principles in and uh, but like I think as you get more experience and more expertise um that actually allows you to be much more flexible um, and that's really where, yeah, that's really what, what the expertise does. It's not like, oh, I've learned all this stuff and now I need to go and apply it. It's more like I now have kind of different tools in my arsenal that I can use to like make something that's good for that, like specific for that person, I suppose. Um, yeah, it makes perfect sense. I think sometimes we're often so obsessed with content knowledge, but actually yeah. the context is always changing. And it's been, like you say, being able to take the principles and go, okay, I can be more flexible with that in this environment, you know, like concepts like microdosing and, you know, all those kind of little things is like, we might think of SNC as a 90 minute gym session, but that may not fit in your context. So, you know, what other, what other ways can we be flexible in doing that? But yeah, it's definitely something I think that, that people are probably uh, prioritizing more and more and more content knowledge, but actually, maybe that flexibility is something that, that isn't quite there. So tell us a bit about your day-to-day -day role. So what does it look like working in a ballet school? Um, so from my perspective, Matt talked, so I'm on the younger, with the younger students. So they're kind of 11 to 16. Um, and as Matt said, they're pretty insanely motivated. Even at 11, they're uh, like incredibly like focused. Um, and so we'll do, I guess day to day, I'll normally have a few sessions. I'll do like small kind of group sessions. Um, and obviously the younger ones will be doing kind of more foundational things, I suppose. We'll do a lot of like training in games and stuff like that. Um, 
and then as they get older it'll become a bit more formalized and a bit more specific as they get up to, up the school um so they'll all have their own kind of like individual programs which they'll do in their time slots but also we try and keep track of what everyone's doing so we know they're still kind of getting their kind of physical literacy in so that still develops each year even though it'll look slightly different for each person and then we'll do um, kind of older sessions um, for example the boys will do upper body to prepare for lifting the girls as they get older and the girls will do a lot of uh, foot and ankle work for their uh, point stuff uh, and I work pretty closely with the Pilates instructor um, Mark Keller on that stuff as well um, which again is pretty unique for an SNC environment but it's been um, fantastic uh, and then outside of that we just do a lot of research and statistics and things like that um, and have a lot of meetings there's a lot of like each week we'll meet with the artistic team to talk about students and then meet with the healthcare team, meet with all the physios and, you know, there's a lot of that sort of day to day, which I suppose would be pretty similar to any sort of elite sport environment, I guess. Um, yeah. I've rambled a bit, but it's probably a bit. <laughs> any differences for you, Matt, in terms of obviously working with a slightly older age group? Is there, you know, in terms of training content or also your, your kind of contact time, is that different at all? I think it, it definitely is different and I think I get slightly the better end of the, uh, the bargain um, purely because because we are still a school um, our, all our students have to do academics of some sort and for now where it's a secondary school I think your NAR's contact time is a little bit less I think they they study until the afternoon right yeah they'll do so they'll do four hours of academics and four hours of dance at our school which changes when they when they get up to that school yeah so the upper school they do they'll do two years for the first years and second or for it's equivalent of year 12 and 13 they'll do two hours of academics in the morning and then we'll have about six hours of dance related activities so i've got more scope to work with them um pretty much every day there'll be a group session since at the upper school we have three training groups and they'll be split males and females um, so there's like six snc groups so to speak and pretty much every day there'll be at least one group but a large chunk of my day is working with rehab um, injured dancers. And I think because we've got more contact time, because they've got more dancing time and they're not dancing, I work with them quite a lot, which is very cool. Um, as now touch on, we've got a really nice healthcare team at school. Like, I think some days I kind of wake up and think, like, I can't believe this is the environment I'm working in. They've got really good sports and exercise consultants. We've got four amazing physios. We've got three really strong Pilates instructors. and I mean, as Nile said, for essence, in all every other environment I've worked in, essence in Pilates has always been quite different. Whereas in our school, it's been very integrated. Pilates has had a longer life in ballet as opposed to SNC or strength training, which is more recent. But at the upper school, we also have a rehab ballet instructor. So he was a former dancer himself. Um, he also is, I think, he's a personal trainer. So he has different hats on. He has but in the school, his job is this rehab instructor. So he fits at end stage rehab where the physiotherapists and the SNCs will work with the dancers and just basically give them back to him and he'll slowly integrate them back into class or back into the technical training. Um, and so it's really cool having to work with all these different dancers with different injuries across different spectrums. And rehabbing is probably the biggest part of my day. So we probably... It's a little bit different for us because once they've got to that stage, they're pretty well developed and they're like normally their uh, facility, I suppose, and like various facts, they'll, they'll be pretty good. Um, whereas obviously we're trying to develop that. So I suppose we might have a little bit more emphasis on, I don't know, the getting the flexibility or getting the strength to be able to perform the certain steps. Whereas Matt tends to have more, more kind of, um, well-developed people already and so the focus can I guess be a little bit more general maybe yeah um whereas we like we really just want them to try and keep them in the school for as long as possible I suppose mm. it's yeah. interesting that many many listeners may not think of dancers as athletes but what you've described there you know four hours of academic and four hours of dance on a daily basis at the, the lower school and then two hours of academics and six hours of dance and you've got a multidisciplinary team you're doing rehab sessions like and, uh, you know, obviously boarding school, school as well. Like you could easily be describing a professional sports academy there. Like that ticks us all those boxes, doesn't it? So yeah. for those people who wouldn't think of, of ballet dancers as athletes, what are some of the physical demands that you guys see that might change their minds? Um, 
do you want to yeah. give training level? <laughs> so well, I think just form, first and foremost, ballet itself has changed um, in more recent years. So classical ballet, especially, and Noel's got some good work on this, so he may mention it further down the line, but um, ballet used to be like, yeah, it's very classical. The role of a male dancer was there to support the female dancer. So the female dancer would be almost the center of attention and it'd be more slow kind of end range of motion movements so like very delicate. Whereas now, especially more modern ballets or more modern classical ballets or contemporary, these are all words that I think I should know the meaning of and I'm not really sure if I do, but it's suddenly changed. So it's a lot more raw, it's a lot more explosive. Dancers have to put themselves into the more complex kind of range of motions or movements that are, yeah, that are kind of, that, that wouldn't necessarily be covered in a kind of a technical class. Um, so that's one thing that the sense that just ballet itself has changed and so there's more of a reliant on younger dancers to be fitter and more. So I guess just a bit of context myself and now being at school for three years and at the start, the technical teachers would refer to the dancers as dancers. And if you said athletes, it would like you'd be stared at in such a horrible way. Whereas now I've seen the opposite of the teachers all refer to the dancers as like uh, artistic athletes or aesthetic athlete and so now I've noticed that the technical staff actually using that terminology and I think that reflects how like, the demands of ballet like ballet company directors want more well-rounded um, athletes and so I think that's changed the school environment we as I said the upper school we're training for about 30 hours a week and occasionally have like Saturday classes as well so the training demands and loads placed on dancers are very high um, every day they'll have a technical class which from an SNC point of view would look like a warm-up in a sense that they have the technical class will be about 90 minutes to two hours and the first half an hour to 45 minutes would be what's known as being at the bar and um, so you, you everyone knows some people may have seen it or maybe has a picture and image in their head but there would be a bar that goes around the outside the studio and the dancers will start there and the movements would be very slow and gradual and will eventually build up into bigger, more explosive ballistic movements. And then they'll come away from the bar and go into the center of the class, and that'll be about another half an hour. And it's a little bit of a warm up in a sense, like it, that the bar potentiates what happens in the center. So they go for the similar movements, but will travel a little bit more across the floor. And then that last part will be the Allegro portion or the jumping portion. And so I'll start off with small jumps and then go to bigger jumps and jumps are rotating or traveling, come large distances. And that last jump bit only covers about 15, 20 minutes of a class. And that may vary day to day, but the jump volume in that is insanely intense. Um, in my first year at school, we used to film the classes and we'd have like a clicker, like, uh, like nightclub bouncers do. And we'd watch the, this filming of the class at 0.2 speed and we'd count how many jumps would, would happen in this portion. And the bare minimum would be about 150 jumps in 15 minutes. And the maximum counted was 350. And this was both for males and female dancers. And so the demands would be slightly different. So female dancers would tend to do more smaller double leg jumps, whereas the guys would tend to be doing like bigger single leg rotational jumps. But from a whole point of view, 16, 17, 18 year olds have to do 300 jumps five days a week and then have to do another three hours of ballet after that it was something we had to consider very quickly on, like very early on. Yeah, I mean, it just, like the demands are just crazy in terms of, I guess if I'm thinking, you know, my sort of old school S&C hat, you tend to think, okay, they're maybe mobile and need a bit more stability or they're stable and maybe need a bit more mobility, but actually these need both in like, they need to be very stable in extreme ranges of motion. That it's just, it's just unlike anything anything else um, that I've ever been involved with really. And so that's certainly something that we try and build in like really from an early age, like can you get fully into your range and then control it down there? Um, and so, yeah, that's just extremely demanding. You have to be quite kind of precise with that side of things. From like a, like I know we, I was listening to um, some, some of these podcasts actually um, yesterday and, and there's a lot of people that would talk about, you know, kind of building the athleticism, if you like. But 
we do do some of that, like particularly with the really young ones. And we do play a lot of games with kind of safe landings and stuff like that. But generally, their kind of coordination levels and um, just general kind of like ability to do stuff is like extraordinary. It's like I've never seen anything like it. I mean, it, I used to work in academy rugby and these kids at like 11 are just so much more physically capable than those 16 year old rugby rugby lads really um you know we have like a gymnastics class at the school again for just the younger years and it's pretty much just a kind of fun class which I suppose might be you know what you might consider kind of working on kind of fundamental movement skills if you like um but the guy will just come in and start teaching them all these kind of flips and stuff and they just do it like first time he was absolutely crazy with no preparation or anything like that um and just like the actual demands on them I mean it was pretty intense like so yeah yeah, yeah it's really yeah. interesting like uh, and I for a long time I've been kind of contemplating when do you get such good movers out of these particular sports and the, and the realization for me was you know these aesthetic sports are so heavily scrutinized around the way something is supposed to look whereas mm. you know in in, the, in rugby if you get the ball across the try line it's a try right. and, you yeah. know if you stick at the back of the net it's a goal no one's going to go back and go actually it's not a goal because you used the wrong part of your foot or actually you transferred the ball and you should have kept it so that's not a try whereas you know in gymnastics and, and ballet things have to look a certain way don't they and so yeah, you yeah. get people who are incredibly uh kinesthetic kinesthetically aware and pick up those other skills but i mean at first i thought i misheard you there matt when you said 30 hours a week of training but when you've gone through that training volume talking you know 90 minutes to two hours a day just of your technical class plus all the other bits and bobs that's an insane amount of training volume isn't it like you wouldn't get, get that in a rugby team or a football squad like 30 hours of on feet training just wouldn't happen no and it, yeah, it's crazy because that two hour technical class would be like most like most team academies like entire technical training for that day and that's just their students like, just the standards. yeah yeah it's not even the rehearsal like yeah um, and then and then when you said like you know as well 150 to 350 jumps in 15 minutes like that could be i mean if you're taking another jumping sport i don't know basketball or volleyball or whatever that could be an entire you know game or an yeah. entire set or you know so an incredibly high amount of volume of jumps crammed into 15 minutes so what you know, you've also mentioned some of, you know, double leg, single leg landings with rotations, you know, um, the requirement to be really ex extremely stable in, you know, very end range movements and the extreme demands. So what are some of the injuries that you see come out and that get experienced by dancers? I think it's definitely across the school because we are spending two sites and we've got the White Lodge, the young years and the off school, the old years, we see slightly different injuries. Um, when I started, we had a lot of back injuries and that was almost when the healthcare team was getting set up so I'd contribute a lot of that to just being weaker dancers um the benefit of the really nice benefit of having three years worth of Niles input at White Lodge means that every year at the up school when we get a new intake they're a lot stronger uh, just as Niles said they're extremely coachable which makes me look like an amazing coach which definitely isn't <laughs> the case but that's definitely had a lasting effect. We The most common injuries for a female dancer will be around the foot and ankle. And that would just be purely because the amount of time they have to spend on point. And so their toes will be encompassed in this wooden block and they'll have to go up and spend a large majority of their time, probably about half of their training on point. And so because it is so extreme, from, we get a large majority of our female dancers who join my first year from the White Lodge, but we also have some international students. And so the students who come from White Lodge will be used to access almost like the raw ballet system of training. They're used to that level point where before some of these international students may only done like an hour a day or two hours and suddenly they have to do six hours of dance. And so that's for females, it's definitely foot and ankle. You'll get a lot of shins related to their land, the way they land as well. Also a lot of hips, whereas the male dancers, it's a lot of shoulders because they have to do a lot more upper body work. So they have to do a lot of part of there, which is where they have to lift the girl overhead. And that varies in different complexities as well. And so shoulders, neck, wrists will be the most common for the guys. But again, like year on year, as we have more of an input, we're seeing like less of those. And I've also think for the up school, we see a lot of knees, so a lot of tendon issues. And again, that would just be more the, it tends to be the, the finer, skinnier guys, as opposed to the more, I guess, muscular bulky guys um which makes total sense but they just can't deal with the foot the forces of these amazing jumps and all the guys are amazing jumpers but just 
shoots him in the foot. Yeah. And I think now he's some slightly similar injuries, but yeah, I'd say it's probably we probably get less upper body for the for the guys because we don't do part like part of der, which is where you're lifting your partner doesn't really start until they do a little bit when they're 16, but it doesn't properly start until they get uh, up the mat. And then I'll probably say most of it's quite similar otherwise, but they um, we see a lot of growth related injuries. Um, like Osgood Schlatter's is probably the main one. Um, so that's a big one. And that's a lot of my work and kind of my research is into, you know, predictive formulas and, and things like that and trying to see if there's any way we can um, kind of use some preemptive measures to um, kind of get them before they get serious, basically. I'd say that's probably the big one. And, and again, it's just the training load, like as we've talked about, is just crazy. Um, and while they're growing and things like that, and it's all, they're all growing at different rates and doing different repertoire depending on what age they are. So kind of keeping on top of that is probably the main challenge um, from my perspective, from, a, from an injury standpoint. Mm-hmm. Mm. it's really interesting again you know just looking at those injuries that you're talking about again that you know apart from the really extreme ones maybe due to the on point like a lot of those are just bog standard injuries from sport aren't they like yeah. back injuries shin injuries hip injuries shoulders necks and wrists like when you're talking about lifting your partner i'm thinking about line out lifting and thinking well just yeah. imagine that line out lifter except he's 65 kilos instead of 110 you know and yeah. obviously that's still demanding to that when you're a much lighter body weight and things like Osgood Schlatters, which will be prominent in any kind of youth, particularly football academies and things like that. So, again, I think hopefully we're starting to, to, to show people that actually, whilst the context might be so very different in terms of it's not a competitive performance, it's an artistic performance, the demands are actually very, very similar in terms of what's required. And, and the, I guess the, it is a competitive environment, isn't it, Ballet? Like we know these, these, these kids who are, who are auditioning for spots and auditioning for schools it's an incredibly, it's almost like high performance sport trials, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I think we have, I don't, I don't know the exact numbers, but I'm pretty sure we'd have like maybe around 400 girls would, or would at least apply to go into our junior, like year seven auditions. Then they'll probably keep 200 ish maybe that will come in to actually trial at the school. And then out of that, you'll get maybe like between 12 and 15. Um, and they could be from most of them will be English at that age, but there'll be still some students from kind of all over the world. And then the way it works, and this is why potentially one of the reasons why the kids are so focused is we'll have an assessment each year. And if you lose your, you know, if you kind of deemed not, um, not suitable for further training um, at the assessment, then you'll be assessed out and they'll tend to kind of bring someone else in. So like every year they're constantly trying to, Uh, like compete and stay in the school Uh, and then after that once they get 16 then they will move on to either a school like Matt's or uh, potentially another another company somewhere else so again it's kind of like auditioning I guess the pressure on them because they live there as well that's their actual academic school kind of all their mates are there the pressure is is pretty intense and I mean I'm sure I'm pretty sure like football would be quite similar because um, they start at an early age but certainly rugby is is not that is nothing like that at that age um so so yeah it's uh, pretty crazy competitive but um but it actually like i mean from our perspective it's this is slightly selfishly insane but it makes it makes the kids like amazing to work with because they're just so focused and uh like you touched on earlier rob like you know if i've got a footballer and they score a load of goals sometimes they'll be like well i'm scoring the goal so who cares about i don't know the way i'm turning or something like that um whereas because it's literally all about the way it looks and the aesthetic of what's happening that they have they're very mindful of that and they kind of take that into everything so they'll take that into like snc and the academic work as well um not just the dancing yeah. and i think where it is art uh, because it is an art it's so subjective i mean it's when if you're in an academy setting and film rugby and you've got three pairs of the same position it's very easy for them to become bitter or competitive whereas if i find anyway at uh, the upper school, there might be 15 guys all trying to get the same three jobs, but they've all got a different skill set and very like understand that. And so within a school, it's competitive, but it's not that like they're all working, they're all they're all brothers and sisters. So obviously SNC in, in dance and in ballet is, is a relatively new thing. So what are some of the potential benefits that a structured SNC program can bring to the kind of artistic athlete, be it ballet or, or other dance arts? 
Um, I mean, I guess, obviously, you know, the way I see it is that um, the performance, I suppose, is like your artistry and your skill, I suppose, and whether you've got the capacity to do it. Um, so, and having, I guess, more capacity enables you to express your artistry more. And that's generally how I explain it to the kids. So, for example, if I was wanting to lift my leg up, um, if I don't have the kind of flexibility, the strength in that range, et cetera, then I might be able to do it kind of beautifully, but actually I won't be able to get my leg high enough to um, impress at kind of at the right level, I suppose. So um, I guess from that side of things that we're trying to develop the capacity to just underpin what they're already doing and show the talent that they've got. Um, and then I guess obviously from the, um, just the training loads perspective, we want trying to make people more robust so that they can deal with more and tolerate more. Um, and, you know, things like bone density and stuff are really important. We get a lot of overuse injuries. So again, um, there's a kind of serious implications from, from that side of things um, that we can, we can hopefully train to improve. I think just generally, uh, the ballet repertoire is very seasonal and it's, it, that is probably one of the big difference from sports as well. It's like, in the sport, you may know you've got 20 games and you may know what one game against a certain team looks like in terms of the distance run or the type of movements executed. Um, it's quite hard to build up that knowledge in ballet because it changes so much. So the performances we'll do at the end of the year will change year on year. Um, so it generally, as you know, like SNC, a structured program, can almost like tick every box and feel what's missing. Um, in some instances in the school, we've been working on some real general work, such as a uh, big thing in ballet is turning out. And so again, it, it maximum external rotation at the hips. Um, and because that's so maximal, we spend a lot of time working on hip internal ro rotation and strengthening the adductors. And there'll be periods of time where dancers might not necessarily understand that or ask some questions why, like if our teachers tell us we need to turn out, why are we doing this turning? And then kind of it slowly clicks so we're kind of like ticking these boxes and especially as classical ballet gets more contemporary and have to do more like every movement available to a human they have to do um it becomes really necessary uh, i think specifically as well there's there's just so many different holes and it's just such a it's such a weird and wonderful place to work um so i can imagine i mean i know from my own you know uh practice in snc that you know, there's a, f a fair bit of stigma around training young athletes and that's in mainstream sports. So I imagine given a very traditional culture of ballet, that there's some much more sizable hurdles to, to implementing strength and conditioning. So what have been some of the, the challenges and the barriers you guys have come up against? Um, well, I, I'll, I'll take that one. The, um, yeah, I mean, I think, as you said, like it's not that traditional in, with young, young people in any sport. So, um, you've got probably the classic ones like about does it stop people growing and things like that but that that's not too too unique I suppose so I think probably the main one which people are concerned about is like muscle bulk so you would traditionally in ballet you would want um, what you call the balletic line which is a kind of relatively thin um, sort of physique I guess um, so they're worried about people becoming bulky and then that ruining the line I suppose which changes the aesthetics of the performance but um, I guess it's mostly just education in terms of, you know, I think it's partly the fitness industry, you know, saying like, if you come to our gym, you're going to get really hench like these guys. When actually the reality is if you're doing one, one gym session a week of mostly kind of foundational stuff, and there might be kind of one or two heavy sets as we get older, there's not a really high stimulus. There's a stimulus, hopefully enough. We've hopefully got enough intensity that people get stronger and we tend to see that, but we aren't kind of giving them enough that they're going to suddenly get bigger. And also ballet within itself is, you know, they're tr like the train loads, as we've discussed, is just such a big thing. Um, so they're just not in a particularly good environment for putting on muscle either. Like, um, and, and so, and also a lot of them are naturally very kind of fine. Um, so and quite kind of small so they don't really have great genetics for it often either as well so i guess it's just trying to educate uh, the teachers and educate the students and understand that what we're trying to do and we, we all try and drive our adaptions mostly through intensity um, rather than volume if you like so what we're trying to do is kind of 
train you to get stronger and you need to be strong to deal with this. And the kids definitely understand it and, and, and the teachers as well. Uh, and we're not actually worrying about getting people bigger. I mean, it's quite funny really because part of, for the male dancers, they actually need to have a little bit of muscle bulk in their shoulders and stuff. Um, because it kind of gives them a bit more stage presence and it helps with their part of dirt. And that, so we actually go quite hard in terms of like trying to get some like hypertrophy adaptions there, but it's not, it's not like, you know, what I've been doing, I don't know, 80 breast ups or something like that every Monday. And it's not like they suddenly turn up and they're stats or thing. It's mm. just, it just isn't that easy to do. So um, hopefully, yeah, hopefully it's, it's just continuing to have the conversations. We talk to the teachers all the time. I mean, I actually think the teachers have been really amazing in terms of like it is very traditional but they're very open to listen so we do have a lot of dialogue and certainly I've definitely seen that Matt touched on it a bit earlier but like across the three years I've been here there'll be a bit more of like a discussion of well how for example if I want to make my dancers fitter but then I don't want to overload them like how can we maybe adapt ballet class so that we can do that and that kind of those conversations are kind of more open and, and they're happening more often which is like really promising from our perspective so yeah um, yeah, yeah. I imagine that there's a bit of a shift as well like if you you know you mentioned they're kind of going after intensity rather than volume and they the volume is something they have an abundance isn't it if you're training 30 hours a week and doing 350 jumps in 15 minutes volume isn't your problem but perhaps yeah. as you've said you know around bone mineral density and some of the other elements of strength and intensity is probably where you should be going but do you find, I mean, when you say intensity, I'm thinking obviously maximal strength development and um, that kind of side of things. Is there much kind of friction towards getting people to understand the importance of, of that maximal strength development? Um, I don't think so. Like, I think, <clears throat> I think most of them would understand that being strong is important. Um, and certainly they will see that, you know, they'll come, you know, that we might, you might get a different student who's used to a different type of training where, you know, it's more about mobility and they might be very hypermobile and they'll kind of use that to get into the positions. Whereas I guess more traditional British way of dancing is to be more stable and strong through those positions. So I think they would understand that that's something they need. I think there probably was a bit resistance to the methodology. Um, so, I mean, just weight training. It's just not the most traditional. Um, but again, it's just educating people that actually that's not, we, we're using that to increase the intensity. We're not doing it. It isn't like some magic bullet that then suddenly they're going to put on loads of muscle or they're going to change shape or anything like that. And we're also very, we try and be very clear on like what this is for. And um, so we'll, we're, they might have certain things like turnout, for example, that Matt talks on, we'll use exercises to improve their turnout and they all know if I get better turnout I'll hopefully be dancing better and, and, and vice versa so it's just continuing education really um, but I'd, I'd say there was a bit of resistance to it but you know I, I now I, I certainly feel hopefully it's kind of proving it's worth a bit more. Hmm. I think yeah you definitely see I guess definitely got a lot better I'd say at the start of when I first started the upper school out of 15 in a group there'd be maybe 10 dancers who kind of had the question mark and five who got it and the same for the teachers they're like a, they didn't really understand it so we had to spend a lot of time in education um Niles put his head on a chopping block like quite a lot but that's definitely paid off um there's definitely been a really positive change and one of the things we've done the endless presentations but I just remember talking to him about some of the training node stuff so when I had this data about how many movements they executed, like jumps, stuff, I almost presented it to them, and they were the teachers were almost kind of shocked in a way. Because they also always, as like technical coaches do, they have a session planned in their head. But the thing about a ballet class is, if you have fifteen people in the studio, you don't have that much room to jump around, and so they you might break that group into four groups, and so the teacher might set 150 jumps in that in that jumping session and there'll be about half the students who will do 150. Um, they will just do the bare minimum and then when they're not working, they might go get a drink of water or they might stretch or do whatever they need to do to don't feel good. There'll be a small percentage who will do their jumps, the, the one they're meant to do, but then when the next group is working, they might mark the jumps, whether that's going through the steps in the head, but just not jumping. Or still like a very... They might not physically be working, but psychologically, they're still ticking over. 
and there'll be two or three dancers in every group that will do their jumps and then they would also jump when the next group is working and also when the next group is working. Um, and so one of the big things was trying to make the teachers aware that everyone may be doing 150 jumps, but there's little Johnny in the corner who's done 450. Um, and I think the teachers are a lot more aware of that now. They kind of, they're very happy like when to tell a student like, not to do something and no one wants to feed that back. And also at the same time, we've every year, because we're at school, we work in three terms. And so we have the school breaks. And the teachers now have like concepts of periodization ingrained in them. So it'll be the second or third week back and I'll, we'll have a meeting. I'll be like, Matt, can we, can we start jumping now? We've had like two or three weeks where we've been slowly building up to it. And it's kind of, it's really rewarding for me to sit in a position because I haven't had to do any of the lectures to them about like periodization. I've, I've nagged them a couple of times, but Adam Atuta used to work at the school. I'm like, no, and myself, we've all had different inputs with the teachers. And I think they're all benefiting that from a different way. So it's very, it's cool to have a 45 year old dancer who is like an ex-professional who didn't periodize when they were training and now ask me like, is it okay to jump or to see the benefits of that. It's such a like trickles all the way through as well. I mean, like some of the teachers, one of the teachers at our school, I think has been there for 50 years because she was a student, stayed in the Royal Ballet Company and then came back to the school to be a teacher. So there is some serious, you know, like it has been pretty big change. Yeah. Um, but it's a real, like, I feel like it's much more collaborative now and that's really the future of it. It's like built into what we do. And so if they want to know something or we want to know about, okay, well, what are you looking to achieve here? We, we've just got that kind of open dialogue. And it's also when we educate the students, in some ways you can probably be a bit more, because they're slightly less, they're probably a bit more open-minded about some of it. So you're educating the students and actually I've had instances where, well, like a student will say to me, well, you're telling us this so that when we're teachers, we'll know and we can teach our kids. And that's really what you're trying to do is just get people to understand this stuff and educate them. So, you know, it trickles down. So for the next generation, they have a more appreciation of periodization and et cetera, et cetera. And I mean, a good example is Matt did some pretty cool research on training load. He looked at how their jump changed and kind of some of the variables, like a peak power output and stuff like that um, across the term. He did like a, you know, training every every Monday was it you did and found that actually their jump was going down and their peak power as they trained. So in some ways their technical ability is going up, but their fatigue is just increasing. So we get to a performance where we want them to be at their best and actually they're the most tired they've been the whole term, even though they might be technically at the best. So that stuff like that, you can then show to the artistic director and they're like, well, obviously we want them to be at their best. So they might modify training around that so yeah it sounds like the work you've been putting in with the younger people Niles, is reaping dividends for matt so i think he owes you a few beers um yeah, definitely, do, you, definitely. do you think the perception so obviously the perception within your environment is changing do you think that's true of ballet wider or do you think that's specific to, to the environment you're in i think i think the, the it's definitely a continuing and the momentum is definitely shifting in a positive way um, you still get some individuals on social media who post some potentially like rogue things and you'll get couples, but then going back three years, it was maybe that half of those group kind of didn't get it. And so there's definitely a, a positive shift. Um, some of the girls have even, so the sessions at one point in the year, they'd be split into either a strength group or a power group, depending on their profile results or whether they were working on in that particular time period. And one of the girls coined a new phrase. And so she changed it from, because they're ballerinas, there's now strength arenas and power arenas. And suddenly like everyone's got on board. And so like now it gets a point, and Noel's hard work has definitely paid off because I'll have 15, 15, 16 year old girls who just come in and just go for it, which is like a great position to be in. Um, and so there's still that negativity on social media, but I think now, the education we've done, the hard work we've done is paying, like paying off. Um, the students are less reliant on that and they're very easy. Like the amount of times I've had conversations in the gym where a dancer's come up and said like, oh, Mark, look at this, what I've just seen on Instagram. And now the ones who are criticizing it and I'm just going like, this is cool that you've kind of got this ability to be open. Like, I don't think 15, 16 year olds, I mean, when I was 15, 16 year olds, my friends definitely didn't have the mental capacity to be that like open. <laughs> Uh, or that kind of critical and so it's a very cool position to be in um, and I think 
it's definitely changing at the bottom. We've got the next generation of dancers who are on board and the next generation of teachers. Um, we've done some education for at the school. We also got a dance and diploma, a diploma and dance teacher and qualification. So they're all student teachers and they're typically around kind of 25 to 35 years old. Um, and some of those are ex-professionals, some of those are just vocational ballet trainers, so taking the next kind of qualification. And it's quite interesting having conversations with those because they've all come from different experience, uh, different backgrounds, but their perceptions definitely change that SNC and Pilates and supplementary training is that has a role and that some of the old ways of ballet is wrong. And I think now we're seeing some ex-professionals realise. So I think it's definitely changing at the bottom and the momentum shifting and there's some change at the top. Um, that's my point of view anyway. Yeah, um, yeah, no, I, I'd agree really. Um, like we, the dancers do a degree program as well, which will they'll have a healthy dancer module. So we'll talk them through, you know, they have to learn about you know, strength training and neural adaptions and all this type of stuff. So they understand it from that perspective. I think in terms of like the wider environment, um, it's always a little bit difficult to tell because we're in a bit of a bubble, but um, I definitely think there's more out there. There's um, like Nico Elmerhurst, there's all the guys at Birmingham, Australia ballet are quite big on that type of thing. So I certainly find that a lot of the Australian students are a lot more, like they're pretty open-minded about all of it. Um, yeah, and there's like Rupert's doing stuff on social media. So there's, there's some guys out there that are kind of putting stuff out that, I mean, to be fair, it's, I wasn't, before I was working in ballet, I wasn't really looking for it, but there's definitely a, a much more of a kind of increased awareness. And um, I think we just have to be a little bit conscious of, you know, strength and conditioning is great, but we're not saying like strength and conditioning is great and therefore Pilates is rubbish. Do you know what I mean? Actually, I think it's really cool because they work quite nicely together. I mean, you've got kind of, I guess, slightly more specific and fine kind of motor control and you've got slightly more capacity based and, you know, in what type of other environment would you have that so clearly like mapped? Um, so, so yeah, I think, I think just, yeah, going back to, I think hopefully in the wider world, there is more of appreciation for it, but um you know, you, you never quite know. There's always going to be people that are more traditional and stuff like that. But once so, time. <laughs> what advice would you give to someone who is working with younger dancers who maybe, I don't know, maybe has more of that traditional mindset or is starting to open up to the idea of strength and conditioning? What is there any advice you'd give them? Uh, well, right. yeah. I'd just say that for me, it was... I, don't know, I think the population of dancers I work with, are, uh, it's incredibly niche uh, in a sense that it's the highest standard it can be. Now that sounds really like egotistic, but in a sense that I'm working with a small group of population who are at the top of their game and I'm just working with them for a set period of time. I haven't worked, I haven't had the pleasure of working more kind of grassroots or lower level um, dancers. I've only ever been like rural ballet school. Um, but even then, like it's, it's kind of not just like neglecting the basics, I guess. And I've touched on social media, and I, th I think there's still definitely a lot of that in. In I'm not too heavily involved in social media from a dance science point of view, or, but there's a lot of bubbles in the dance community and dance science community, and you still see some questionable conversations. Conversations we were having three or four years ago are still being said now. Um, stuff about kind of the muscle bulk and, bulk and how like negative conceptions about the effects of training on young dancers and so their conversations are still out there I think we're just fortunate enough not that we've evolved past that point but it's just I guess yeah being mindful constantly having those conversations with dancers and um, we have at school we have like a junior associates program and they will just train with the Royal Ballet School for about an hour an hour and a half a week but they they have come from different schools and so it's quite interesting seeing them work at the weekends and their, I guess, methodology and their philosophy, like how that's different to like what our normal is. Um, yeah, I think probably like if, if you were coming from that perspective, like a kind of a dance teacher who like maybe is had a background purely in dance, I think just getting some sort of background info like maybe do a something basic like a I don't know fitness instructor schools or a basic nutrition or whatever and just try and expand your kind of more general knowledge and then see how you can apply apply it to your environment. I think probably even if you spoke to us we we've got a focus of like this type of ballet training and how we fit our training around that. It's actually it's more about understanding your 
the basic principles of what you're looking for and then knowing how to apply that with your students. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So. And it's a bit of like random, but I'm 25, I'm 95 kilograms, I'm six foot two, but I've got a pair of ballet shoes. Yeah, it's so true. And I think that's been like one of the, there's been times in the SNC session where we will have like an intentional like rest break, something like that, but then I'll be teaching the students something related about SNC. But because a ballet's so ingrained in the head, there'll be one kid who's just doing something in the background. And I'm like, oh, that's cool, like, can you teach them how to do something? So the amount of, it's probably horrifying the amount of, videos or pictures there of me doing something like horrible or falling on the floor but I think it's um the students definitely kind of getting bored like I, I didn't know anything about ballet before working here I'd seen one ballet and that's just because a friend was in it um and I think now some little bit similar like, our knowledge wasn't there but I think we we're like very happy to kind of immerse ourselves in that environment and the teachers here as well they can walk past studios and see me having like a private teach like a ballet class um and I think you get that in every sport you work in, the technical coaches, that's their life as well. So seeing that the, the S&C coach or your supplementary, or your support staff have an interest in that as well, definitely helps to break down some of those barriers and speed through things. Yeah, it definitely helps to, it's almost like expressing your like vulnerability. So like I know there's still now a, a lot that I don't know about ballet yeah. um, and like the various steps. So you just have to kind of throw yourself in there and not be afraid to maybe embarrass yourself, ask kind of stupid questions, but you're better off asking a stupid question and getting and learning than being like, oh, actually I can maybe work this out for yourself because the reality is like you, you don't, you don't have a clue compared to the people that have been working in your whole life, you know? Yeah. So, um, so it works the other way as well. It's not, I'm not just saying all ballet teachers should learn about health and fitness. I think, if you're in our position trying to work in ballet, you need to try and understand it as much as you can, you know? Yeah. I lost control of a Zoom session the other day where 30 dancers laugh at me because we'd gone through this phase of jumping where it's some really generic jumping into more sports-specific jumps. Oh, yeah. And well. they were they were just laughing at me for like 10 minutes on Zoom call, but it kind of they it kind of clicked as to what we'd been doing the last couple of weeks and why I was doing it and kind of the impact the yeah, the crossover hat. So their highlight was just seeing me butcher this like ballet jump, but I think they slowly on like they got the concept yeah. of like what we was working towards, and so that helped them me making a fool of myself as now I said like just expressing that vulnerability. I mean like it's a lot. From my experience of working rugby and football, a lot of practitioners working in football have got a good understanding of football or used to play it themselves, and the same for rugby. And so I think it's slightly easier to transfer that technical knowledge, whereas in ballet like. Yeah, we don't have that. So you've obviously mentioned already a couple of, I guess, the more useful kind of social media accounts for people to, to check out if they're interested in, in SNC for ballet. So could you kind of signpost some people towards, uh, towards what those accounts would be or any other resources that you think would be valuable? Um, I guess uh, I'm not sure. Social media, like, I'm not massive on like checking out my social media, but I think definitely in terms of like, um twitter and stuff there's um like siobhan mitchell's really good from my perspective she does a lot of stuff in terms of like growth um and maturation in ballet and how it might affect the dancers so that's pretty interesting and then um and then outside of that probably a lot of the guys that you've had on your podcast rob so like um you know sean cummings or joe, uh, joe eisenman um, and they do some like eisenman does some really cool blogs on like uh, growing and maturation and stuff which i think is really useful and I think that would be also pretty useful for like, I guess most dance teachers are working with kids. And so they want to know if they grow or they go through their growth, but how, how might I change my training or how that might affect my dancers. So I think that would be pretty useful for them. And then uh, apart from that, it's just all of that sort of, you know, Oliver and all of those guys, Fagan Baum and all the classics. Um, that's probably what I'd spend most of my time looking at. Um, but yeah, I don't know, that's probably different. I mean, I think I'm definitely I'm a bad practitioner in the sense that I definitely close my doors a lot. Um, there, there is a couple of active dance science groups on Twitter. There's a group of um, completely butchering this from Norway. I can't remember the handle, such so useless. Um, now I've touched on a couple of kind of colleagues work into Adam Matusi at Europa House. He posts a lot of stuff, and there's also Joe Shaw, who is a PhD student, but he's looking at the training loads. So some of his work on ballet, good one for dating nerds as well. That yeah, <laughs> he's, he's, he's a wizard. 
always say at the other houses, Gregor, and he's quite active on Instagram and Twitter. And yeah. so there's, there's definitely stuff out there. Um, I'm sure we can find highly accounts. Yeah. So lastly, where can people find out more about you and, and your work and, and keep touch on, on what you're doing moving forward? So I'm not very active, but I'm on Twitter and Instagram. So Twitter is just M Lamarck SC. Um, and Instagram is Matt underscore Lamarck performance. And also I'm very happy to be contacted by email, which is matt.lamarck at ruralballetschool.org.uk. Um, I'm like terribly slow at everything to do with my phone. So it might take me like two to three working weeks <laughs> to get like, as Niall understands. Yeah. Um, yeah, from my perspective, I, I'm just at Niall McSweeney on Twitter, which hopefully there's not too many others out there. Um, and then uh, also Instagram, um, I have it's a kind of energy of performance, it's called, um, which I guess like I can send to people. But similarly, if people just want to, if people have any questions, they want to contact me by email, it's just uh, niall.mcsweeney at royalballetschool.org. Yeah. I think the nature of our job, we, we're very fortunate we work with some cool people and we do a lot of work. I just don't think we're as active on social media as potentially we could be. But I think they're very open and like really enjoy talking to other practitioners, yeah. like minded practitioners. So yeah, we have some really cool. I mean, this talks, you know, how you talked about the overall uh like dance in general, like SC within dance in general. And we've had some and pretty cool ones with that's that school at Leeds and yeah. where they they've got um people working there from the University of Leeds with their dancers and so we have these sort of Zoom chats and stuff. So like anyone wants to kind of reach out and chat about stuff, you know, it's uh, love doing it sort of thing and it just makes us better as well so yeah happy to chat Brilliant. well thanks so much for your time today guys it's been really good to to dig into a completely different context to, to what most people are used to and open up some eyes hopefully as to to what the being you know the artistic athlete is all about so thanks for your time thank you very thanks much, so much Rob. Rob. thanks for having us thanks for the opportunity